may be seated. This morning, good to see everybody here. You think, wow, there's not that many people here. Well, obviously. Uh, yet there's way more than there were last week. I mean, our attendance numbers are way up. <laughs> March 14th, 2020 was uh, a day in which I don't think I'll ever forget because uh, at 6.40 p.m., I sent an email that I thought I would never send. Basically, called the church to not worship, which is just unthinkable. And yet, we as a people, really a world, uh, encountered a, a global pandemic known as the coronavirus, COVID-19. And that had hit home in a particular way that we would have never anticipated in the weeks or days prior. It was that night that our local authorities had issued a state of emergency which led us to the difficult and awkward decision to call our church to not worship. And yet we recognized that given the reality at that time, it was a wise and a gracious call to make. And coming together for our regular worship, to sing, to pray, uh, to participate at the Lord's table, uh, to hear the word, could have really been something that jeopardized people's health. And we wanted to do all that we could to support uh, health in our people, especially those who are quite vulnerable. Here we are, 14 weeks later. Have you ever thought 14 weeks? Literally a whole quarter of ministry together, it feels like. Like three whole months. A lot can happen in three months. Here we are, 14 weeks. We're here to worship God in an adjusted fashion, right? We have masks and social distancing and um, reduced capacity. Just an awkward, odd day in which we live. And yet it's exciting today to be with each and every one of you and call you to worship together. Now we recognize that uh, there are many uh, people that are unable to be here. Uh, we have some folks in the, in the 9 a.m. Uh, but there are many people that are high risk and have children. And some of the uh, just concerns that they have and even anxieties, uh, those are real. And we said this morning to those that were able to listen online that this was a time to really let them know that we love them, that we're praying for them. And uh, in no way us celebrating uh, coming to worship this morning is meant to make them feel like, oh man, they're trying to miss out. Uh, but you know what? They are missing out. And yet we love them. We pray for them. And we long for the day that we can be back together as one church, one assembly, one service, uh, praising God together. And yet, we are here, and we do have this opportunity to worship the Lord, and so that's what we're do, uh, going to do. Psalm 100 is literally that. We've sung it already, uh, and now we are about to read that scripture. Uh, actually, Ethan read the first couple verses as well. So listen to these words. Psalm 100, it's our last Sunday in this series called Good News from the Psalms. We're going to be transitioning 
back to Matthew. I know some of us have uh, just bemoaned the fact that we had to put the pause button or felt led to put the pause button on the Matthew series. Well, exciting news. Next week we'll be back into the Sermon on the Mount. And you can uh, uh, be looking forward to that. But this day will be our last uh, sermon in the series, Good News from Calvary. And this calls us to worship. It tells us how we are to worship. And it tells us why we uh, have the privilege and joy to worship together. Listen to what the psalmist says. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us. And we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. Verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And His faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of the Lord and all God's people said, Amen. Some good to hear. We say those words. I don't know about you, but I use lists. Becker might make fun of me because my lists, lists are all over the place, on computers, on the walls, on my desk. But I still use them. I at least try. And I don't know about you, But when I make a list, I start to get overwhelmed, right? Because I see a list of things that I have to do, and I think about the clock and the date, and I think, man, there's no possible way all these things that I've got to do, I'm going to get done in the time that I have. Raise your hand if you understand what I'm talking about. It's too much. You know, I think I'm doing myself good to make a list, and all of a sudden, I realize I'm not going to be able to get it done. So I get overwhelmed by it. But understand, like, lists are not simply overwhelming. They're also helpful in clarifying, giving direction, uh, telling us and organizing what we're supposed to do. That's what's going on here in Psalm 100. We have a list, verses 1 through 4, a list of seven commands about how we're to worship. I think that's a really important starting point when we talk about worship today. Is how do we worship? Where do we get the answer to that question? We get the answer to that question in God's Word. God's Word provides us a list that clarifies, that guides, that directs, that tells us how we're to worship, what specifically we're supposed to do. It's the Scriptures that call us to worship, and it's the Scriptures that tell us how we are to worship. It tells us. Verse 1, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Make a joyful noise. It's actually the sound of a celebrative audience uh, of people that are watching their king come in from battle. And almost like three cheers to the king. That joyful noise. It's hip hip hooray. Is literally what Alistair Begg said this uh, word is really uh, uh, communicating. So, how do we worship? We make a joyful noise. Who 
makes a joyful noise? All the earth. Don't miss that. That this call to worship here in Psalm 100 is a call on the whole earth. It is a universal call that goes out to all of creation. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. That tells us that none are exempt from this call. There is no one out of bounds from this call that is exempt from it. There is uh, no people, no nation, no language. There's no time. There's no creature that is not uh, under the realm of this call to worship the Lord with this joyful noise. A good friend showed me that this is an indiscriminate call. All people, all nations, all languages, we are called to worship the Lord. The second thing we see is serve the Lord with gladness. Means serve, minister, really work, sweat, get in the game, do something. It's a serving. Number three, come into his presence with singing. It's connoting a, a, a movement, an approaching, a gathering from one place to another. The place where you are, leave that place and come and enter tells us to know the Lord, that He is God. It's He that made us. We are His. We are the sheep of His pasture. Basically, you need to know something. The Lord is God. The Lord is Creator. We come to know that we are His, that we belong to Him, that as creatures, He is our Creator. He is our Shepherd. We are His sheep. To worship well, Biblically, is to know something, and it's the Lord that He is God. Number five, enter His gates with thanksgiving in courts of praise. Again, very similar to come into His presence with singing. And the last two, verse four, give thanks to Him, bless His name. Really point to us that that worship is very much an act of speaking, of singing. We use our mouths. To worship God. So thank Him. Thank Him. And bless Him. Bless Him not to give Him something that He does that He needs from us. Like God doesn't need our blessing. He is all that is blessed. He is the source of blessing. And so when we bless His name, we're actually acknowledging and affirming that He is the source of all that is good and the source of blessing. When we worship, we make a joyful noise. We give thanks to Him. We sing. We bless His name. All actions of the mouth are words. So those are the seven commands. You wonder, how do I worship? There it is. Those seven ways. That's how you worship as you gather together. But I think below the surface, if you begin to observe what's going on here, I think there's a little more that maybe we can glean and and see. That in this call to worship, the psalmist is combining action 
intellect and feelings, emotions. Worship is a call to act. It's a call to do something. And such a call to act is steering us away from a disengaged passivity. And disengaged passivity has been a part of the church throughout history, and oftentimes the biblical teachers, pastors, and and, and scholars will, will point out that the scriptures call us to an action, away from passivity, to act. It's much of what we see today, often in the consumeristic mindset of the contemporary church, that there's something done for them. But this goes way back to medieval times. And actually, Sinclair Ferguson, in his uh, one of his articles, points out that what we see happening in the Reformation is a shift and a proper, appropriate shift in the emphasis. And, and, and the Reformers, the, the Reformer that led the way in this regard was John Calvin. His contribution to the Reformation was how to biblically and rightly worship God. He was very concerned about the way in which worship was conducted. Because oftentimes the the medieval church would be engaged in a a passive approach that worship was done for the people by the priest. And they were just passive recipients. And the church, the Reformed church, called the people away from such uh, disengaged passivity to participation. Worship is a call to act. Worship is a call for us to participate. And so that's what we do. We participate in the, the singing, in the praying, in the listening, in the responding, in coming to the Lord's table together, which sadly we're unable to do at this time. We're participating. We're not passively disengaged. We are um, participating in in a very real way. So worship is a call to act. It's a call to do something in response to the Lord. Secondly, worship is a call to think. And to think in worship is one that steers us away from a hyper-emotionalism in worship. I think that's also what we see today oftentimes in the contemporary church. Songs can be saturated with a self-centered emotion that is devoid of any real truth or doctrine. Worship services can often be moments where, where the leader is just trying to conjure up some feeling, some experience. Because ultimately what we want people to have is some move in the, movement in their heart and experience that they can walk away and say, that was awesome. D.A. Carson, I think, rightly points out that oftentimes that that was awesome has nothing to do with God and His Word and His truth, but really how you felt as the worship leader sang and led. That you were moved in your spirit. And that was awesome. It actually becomes a celebration of how good of a job we did or the pastor did, or the worship leader did. And we gauge our services based on that. And I don't know about you, but I often get caught up in this myself. 
Obviously, we want to worship God no matter where we are. We want to plan and do well. We don't want to be distracting by leading people away from what we're trying to communicate. But oftentimes, we just miss the point. And so what we see here is we are called to think when we worship. It's called to know, verse 3, know that the Lord, He is God. He made us. Know something. Think. That's worship. To engage objective truth that the Lord is our God. That He created us. That we belong to Him. Worship involves the mind. We know that this knowledge reveals great truth. That God has given us all that we need to know Him in the Word. So we turn our attention to the Word today, to know the Lord, to understand who He is. And all of that steers us away from a disengaged mind that is just simply in the midst of some sort of hyper-emotional experience. But lest we fall into just doing something and thinking something rightly, We have to understand that what you can see in the first four verses of Psalm 100 is more than a call to act and more than a call to think, but a call upon our very heart. Not just the hands and the head, but a call on the heart. Worship is a call on us to feel, to be moved in spirit. Serve the Lord with what? Gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Often accompanied with great joy. Enter His gates with thanksgiving. Give thanks to Him. Praise His name. There's a tone and language here that gets at our heart, at our emotions. That we're not just cold and right, but we are glad and joyous in our hearts. And that steers us away from a cold ritualism. Feel something. It's okay. It's good. We're meant to be moved and glad and joyous in the God that we worship. Just think about the great commandment. Love the Lord your God. way, shape, or form do I want to reduce love to an emotion. We're going to talk about it in a little bit. Still reading Jesus. Still reading Psalm here is including emotion and feeling for us as we respond with joy and gladness. If we really want to just sum it all up, how do we worship God? We're given these seven things. Every aspect. Head, hands, 
action, thinking, feeling. All that we are is worshiping you. That's what the psalmist is calling us to. That's what we've missed together. The opportunity to come together and sing and pray and rejoice together as the people of God. In our greatest delight, delighting in the Lord's good. That's what we know. And that's why we sing. That's why we pray. That's why we listen to His Word. Because we know who He is. We know that we're called to worship Him with all that we are. That's the call of this text. To worship God with all that we are. I don't know about you, but when I'm told what to do, because that's it, right? That's what we're called in this text to do. Worship God with all that we are. When I'm called to do something, like basis, reason, is absolutely important to me. Why are we doing this? I don't want to just know what to do. I want to know why. And, and I'm, I'm a, a person that's often motivated by rationale. Don't tell me just what. Don't tell me just how. But give me a reason. Give me a basis, a foundation. And the wonderful news is, is that the text tells us why in verse 5. We worship the Lord for all that, with all that we are, for all that He is. We worship Him for, with all that we are because of all that He is. The first thing He tells us is that the Lord is good. Do you know that this morning? In the midst of this madness and these unique days, know that the Lord is good? That's why we worship today. That's why we gather. That's why we're called. And that's why we do so joyously because we understand and know that the Lord is good. There's a a common chorus confession that you might often hear. Somebody says this, God is good. All the time, right? All the time, God is good. See, that's what we know. That's, that, that's what the church does. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. So we understand that we're worshiping the Lord because He is good. Objectively, yes, we know He's good because He revealed Himself to be so. But understand this, we also know He's good because it's been a part of our subjective experience. We know the Lord. We experience His goodness. The absence of evil. Absolute perfection. It's his loveliness, as Wilhelmus L. Brockle quote defines for us. It's his loveliness, his gentleness, his kindness, his patience, his friendliness. unexpected provision just based on the generosity of God to provide for His children. What confession often is, the Lord is so good to me. He's so good. Meaning He's generous. He takes care of us. He's good. And that's what we've seen over the last 14 weeks, that the Lord, even in the midst of this, has been good to us. 
think he's good. The text tells us that he's love, loving. It goes on to tell us his steadfast love endures forever. And this word is absolutely significant. Don't miss this word, steadfast love. It's over 250 times in the Old Testament. And it's the Hebrew word, hesed. Oftentimes translated, mercy. Loving kindness. Here in the ESV, steadfast love. What is this steadfast love that endures forever? It's a very important word that we must understand. Gets at the nature of our God. It refers to a love that's relational. Yes, relational. But it's relational in the sense that one person is is taking an action on behalf of another person. That's the relationship piece. So often we think of love as simply emotional. It's not devoid of emotion, but what's emphasized in steadfast love is this action that is taken on behalf of another. But understand that the way God relates is also on the basis of His, co- of his covenant that He makes with His people. And you often see this word used in connection with His covenant. Let me say it differently. His promises to a particular people. That's what steadfast love is. Steadfast love is the, the covenantal love. The love that is given to a particular people on the basis of a promise that God makes to them. And this promise that is made to a people that do not deserve that love. That deserve the exact opposite. That deserve His wrath and His righteous anger to be poured out against their sins. You see, there's no merit in the people that hear about and receive this kind of love. No. The love that is in God is simply based, or that we enjoy from God, is simply a love that is based on a promise that He has made to His people. A gracious, merciful, kind promise. And that promise is a promise, that love, based on that promise, is a love that endures forever. It doesn't go up and down. We're not in and out of that love. We praise God because it is a love that endures forever. It's as good as His promises. Amen? Lord, it's good. That's why we worship in your name every day. Because He's full of steadfast love that endures forever. We experience it. Again, we don't just know it objectively. It's subjectively experienced as the people of God. But we know without a shadow of a doubt, God loves us in His covenant and His promise. And last, we see that His faithfulness endures to all generations. Right? The Lord is a faithful God. We just sang that. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is a faithful God. Every promise that He has made, He has kept. Amen? I think that's an amen-worthy statement. The Lord is faithful. Every promise that He's made, He has kept. Second Timothy, if we are faithless, He remains faithful. Why? Because He cannot disown Himself. 
and faithful God. He's dependable, and, and, and uh, he always does what he says he's going to do. His word is true. He's faithful to all generations. He's been faithful in generations past to the promise with the promises he's made, and he will be faithful to the end. Because he's faithful. And that's important for us in recognizing this call to worship. Jonathan Edwards, in his work called Religious Affections, says this, Men will trust God no further than they know Him. trust in God no further than they know Him. He goes on to say, and they cannot be in the exercise of faith in Him one-eighth further. That just means one unit. Meaning you can't grow from one place to the next in your faith. They cannot be in the exercise of faith in Him one-eighth further than they have a sight of His fullness and faithfulness in exercise. in exercise over your life, in every situation in your life, pertaining to His promises, His faithfulness, the more you're able to gaze upon it, consider it, understand it, reflect on His faithfulness, the more you're able to trust in Him. His credibility goes up and you embrace that. I would go on to say that it's the same when it comes to worship. That is His nature, which includes His faithfulness. His love, His goodness, the more we know it, the more we see His nature and attributes in exercise in the midst of every moment of our lives, the more that we're able to see the fullness of who He is and respond accordingly in worship, in singing, in praying, coming together as a body of local believers. Blessing His name. It's a significant thing to understand. That we worship the Lord with all that we are for all that He is. It's all about His nature. Knowing it, enjoying it, seeing it in all of its fullness. He's a good God. He's a loving God. He's a faithful God. And we understand that all of this is most beautifully and fully on display in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is a, an objective reality and person, as we read about in Scripture, but also the very one who has transformed our lives on the basis of His goodness, His love, and His faithfulness. It's Jesus. He is all this for us and His people throughout the ages. Why should I worship God? Jesus. 
Maybe over 14 weeks we've lost sight of that. Sure, I'm preaching to the choir today. No, we're here, aren't we? Yeah, you're here because of Jesus, right? You're here because of the gospel. You're here because he entered into the world and became a perfect sinless man. Became a man who was perfectly sinless. So that he would die a perfect substitutionary love-applying death to cover each and every one of your sins and to take away your guilt and condemnation and to reconcile you back to God. That's the gospel. If anyways, what we see here is a, a responding to the nature of God, responding to the person of God, responding to the work of God, and that is reach, that reaches its climax in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is essentially the object, subject, everything of the gospel, which promotes in us God-glorifying work. can bless His name. Bless the name of Jesus. Because we know that He's good, and He's loving, and He's faithful. And that's what we gather here today to celebrate and anticipate. Yes, in adjusted fashion. Yes, with some new awkwardness. But nonetheless, still a good and fitting thing for us to do as the people of God in the world. I trust that you are reminded today of God's nature. And that all the more you can see and experience who He is in the midst of your life in every situation. And that leads you and motivates you to worship Him with all that you are, with every aspect of your life.
Father in heaven, we all seek your glory today. Be glorified. Blessed be your name. We thank you. This day you have enabled us to worship together again in this place. You've sustained us, protected us in a very unique time, challenging time in world and church history. You're so good, so loving, and so faithful, and you will always be reconciled people on the basis of Christ's perfect work. Save people in our city and in our community, God. Enable your church regardless of race, language, color of skin, social, economic status. All of us who know and trust in Christ, may we be bound together in such a unity that it will bear witness to the world of the glory of Christ. 